0: Well I really hope that if nothing else has been accomplished uh, through our study of this particular book uh, that it's whetted your appetite for Hebrews. I would imagine that Hebrews is probably not a particular book that some of you have studied all that much. It's not one of the central books. It's not one of the gospels. It's one of those that appears very near the end of the Bible that, you know, and we tend to be far less familiar with those books at the end than we are with the ones at the beginning uh, and that sort of thing. Uh, but we're only going to be doing six verses this morning. We've been, I've been trying to do it like half a chapter at a time, but this there was just so much here that I couldn't Get beyond where we're going so let me just read these first six verses let brotherly love continue do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body that marriage be held in honor among all and let the married bed be undefiled, or marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you and never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? We understand some fundamentals Uh, and one of those is this is that the works that we do have nothing to do with actually saving us Uh, they occur because we are saved in other words they are a product of our faith if you remember what what James says faith without works is dead but he also says this. He says, I will show you my faith by my works. So there is a connection between faith and works. And what the connection is, is the works that we do as Christians validate the genuineness of our faith. In other words, no works, no real faith. I don't know a whole lot about grammar. Most of what I think I remember from grammar is taking language classes at seminary. Uh, When I started taking Greek and Hebrew, I had to learn some of the fundamentals about language all over again. (laughs) Been so long since I had English when I was in school and that sort of thing. But you learn a lot about things that maybe you haven't thought too much about in in a while. But one of the things that stands out about this this letter to the Hebrews is it's littered with these verbs that we call imperatives. I mean, they are everywhere. They're all over. And what imperatives boil down to is that they are command verbs. In other words when the Lord uses imperatives he's telling us to do something or not to do something which is very common in scripture in chapter 13 alone the closing chapter of this letter there are 12 imperatives 12 just in this one chapter who knows how many that we've already covered over the months? Now, we need to be very cautious about things, and one of those is this, is in every generation there have been people who have more or less uh, held us to a form of religion that reduces Christianity to just another self-works-based religion. And I want to be very, very clear about it, that Christianity is, in fact, a works-based religion. In other words, we are, in fact, saved by good works. But the difference between Christianity and every other religion is this, is we're not saved by our own works. We're saved by the works of Jesus done on our behalf. That is a liberating thing. That is an aspect of Christianity that sets it apart from every other religion. Every other religion is about you doing. But we have to remember this after saying what we've said that Christians are called to good works. It's part of our calling. But the motivation for doing good works is totally different. In other religions, the participants do works to be saved. Christians, on the other hand, do good works because they are saved. In other words, they are a product of our faith, an important product of our faith. Our works are the fruit of our faith. They are evidence that our faith is real. They're evidence that our faith is genuine. They're evidence that our faith is saving faith. I think there are some people that really wish the book of James wasn't in the Bible. (laughs) Because it seems to teach something that's contrary to what a lot of Paul writes and some of the other apostles as well. James says this very point blank faith without works is dead I will show you my faith by my works we don't do to get brownie points We do because we're called to. Not for our own glory, not for our own benefit, but for the benefit of our Lord and the benefit of His church, and the benefit of other people. I'm hoping, and I know this is true, I, now, and I'm assuming this is true for everyone here this morning, that you haven't come here to worship this morning because you think you're going to get brownie points for it. That's not your principal, primary motivation. You've come here because you want to be here. You've come here because you want to worship the Lord. You come here because horses couldn't keep you back from doing it. Because this is a very, very special time for you. Understand this. It's a very different picture when we come because we want to, not because we have to. And there's so many people in this world that that, that practice a religion, that they go through the motions. Why? Because they have to do it. But, more, but, 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 but imperatives here, they're here. We're commanded over and over again, all through this book and this chapter, to be about our Father's business. He says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In other words, showing love to strangers by our actions. Which is very easy to do when we're talking about people that we know. But I want you to notice something here that what is emphasized is not showing love to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, it's love, showing love, acts of love toward people you don't even know. Perfect strangers. I think probably the best example of what we're talking about here in all of Scripture is the parable of a good Samaritan. Offered by Jesus himself. This man showing abundant, unconditional love and hospitality to an absolutely total stranger. Somebody he didn't know from Adam and going to very great lengths to show himself to be a very great blessing to this particular person. And just remember this, the Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jews. They were considered to be a lesser, inferior race. Nonetheless, we have this parable of the good Samaritan. I want to challenge this 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 morning not just with biblical things, but just some practical things that uh, that the secular world has 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 learned and uh, is propagating. I read an article in psychology uh, today the other day, and obviously it's not a Christian based anything. It's very secularized, and this, that, and the other. But in this particular article, they were encouraging people to show hospitality to other people. Why? Because there's something about it that, that benefits you by doing it. It makes you feel good. So, I mean, what we're talking about here is, is, is it goes beyond Christianity. Just, just common human sense in a sense Did you have any conversations this week with complete strangers people you didn't know Some of you go on we should all be going Okay <laughs> In other words, we should look upon life. When we go to the store, we go, it, it is an opportunity always to meet somebody. We may be going there to the hardware store to get some nails or screws or something like this, that, and the other, but, but almost inevitably you're going to stand in line at the cash register waiting to check out, and there's going to be people there and whatever, and we have a choice to make. We can either stand there like statues and, and, and totally ignore everybody around us Or we could reach out very often to people who would love for you to talk to them. But they're not going to talk to you first. We should see every interaction that we have with other people as an opportunity to share Christ with them. At least in a little teeny tiny sort of way. I mean, seriously, when was the last time you went out of your way to do something nice for somebody that you didn't know? Well, according to psychology today, if you're doing that, then you're actually cheating yourself out of pleasure. For by hospitality, basically some have entertained angels without knowing it doesn't that blow your mind have you ever thought about this there's a there's a chance there's a possibility that you've actually had interactions with angels in your lifetime and you didn't even know it that's hard for us to even imagine But this particular verse opens the door to the possibility that we have unknowingly interacted with angels in our lifetime. Another imperative remember the prisoners. There's there's like 13 imperatives just in this one chapter commands telling us to do these things, not suggesting, not asking. Remember the prisoners as though you were in prison with them. The first ministry, really, I got involved in once I became a Christian was uh, Chuck Colson's prison fellowship. I've been in most of the main prisons in this area. It's been a long time once I got into seminary and started working toward becoming ordained myself that I simply just didn't have time to do it anymore but up to that point I was making regular visits to all the prisons in this whole area and I got to know a, a few of the chaplains in those prisons and everyone would tell you the same thing and that is Christianity is the only thing that makes a difference in the lives of any of these people always remember this. Every time I walked in the gate and I heard it clank behind me, I'm thinking, I sure hope they remember I'm supposed to leave when the time comes. It's a hard place. But let me tell you, being in prison gets people's attention like nothing else seems to Obviously, you have a captive audience. I tell you one of the 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 strangest experiences I ever had was when Dick and Barb and I and Walter and some other people were in Uganda last time, and we went to the the boys prison. I guess Walter wasn't with us, but uh, I'm telling you 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 walk in the door and you just have this Unavoidable sense of just evilness, just hanging over the place. The boys, some of them in there for murder, and they're only nine or ten years old. I can tell you, never in my whole lifetime have I ever sensed the presence of evilness as I did in that place. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Undoubtedly, infidelity is the number one reason for divorce. At any, at any time in history, in any, na- any nation, etc., 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 adultery is most of the time the culprit. There's been a real shifting uh, in our culture over more recent years as to what is really right and what is wrong. You know, because Christianity had such a great influence upon the early history of our country and has, you know, for the most part ever since. People understood it to be something very wrong. But there's been a real culture shift today. And some of the statistics about this kind of thing will just blow your mind. One thing I read, it said as high as 70% of married Americans cheat at least once during their time of marriage. 70%. Cheat rate is higher among men than it is Women. Here, this is disturbing. 74% of men and 68% of women admit they would cheat if they knew they wouldn't get caught. Doesn't that blow your mind? Infidelity amongst religious couples remains nearly as high as the national average. In other words, it's it's almost as high amongst church people as it is in the secular world. There's a sense in which I think God sees adultery as is a very heinous sin, maybe one of the worst. because you can say this, that there's a sense when a, when a believer, when a Christian commits this sin, it's not only an out, act of adultery against their spouse, it's an act of adultery against God himself. The author also says this, let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Are we there? Paul wrote this. He said, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And we understand this that loving money itself is not what the problem is. It's loving the things that you can buy with money that's the problem. Personally, I don't know about you, but I really don't want to be wealthy. I don't want all the worries and the headaches and all that other kind of stuff to come right along with it. But I'll be honest with you, I do want to be comfortable. I don't want to be scraping the bottom of the bucket every month. Well, when it comes to things like this, it's helpful for you and I to remember that everything actually belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. You don't own anything. I don't have anything. Nothing is mine. Nothing is mine. It's all his. My car, or Lori's car, my truck, our house, do not ultimately belong to us. To do with whatever we wish to. There are things that God has afforded to us to be used for our benefit, but at the same time, in some way, to His own glory. We are encouraged to be content where we are. Are we? Well, we can be content for one reason, and one reason and only, that is because the Lord has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That is where our anchor lies. That's where our foothold is. That's what holds us on course. Some of the studies I read said that the 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 fear of abandonment by other people is the number one fear amongst people. That they're going to be deserted by all the people around them. Loved ones in particular. Number two is uh, not having enough money, (laughs) running out of money. Abandonment is a terrible thing. I saw it firsthand, the result of it. My father's father abandoned him and his brother and my grandmother when my father was maybe eight or nine or ten years old. That created issues for him that went through his entire lifetime. He was still struggling with things when he died. He grew up in his grandparents' house. He passed away four or five years ago now. And I would like to be able to tell you that he was, he was peaceful. Uh, but he uh, wasn't. I was at their house, Lori and I became their primary caregivers for the last five or ten years of their lives. And my wife is to be commended for what all she did for her in-laws. She's a remarkable woman and she demonstrated that to me in particular ways when it came to dealing with my parents who were not easy to deal with. But I was over there one day, pressure washing their roof because my dad wanted it pressure washed. I did it. My mindset about doing it probably was not real great. He's like, you want me to get up on the roof and risk my life <laughs> just because you don't want mildew on your shingles. <laughs> so I was up there kind of fuming the whole time I was doing it. But later on, he told me this. You know, when I was doing I noticed that one of the neighbors came by, and they were talking with each other. And uh, my dad shared with me what that conversation had to do with. And, and what his neighbor did, he said, he said, who was that guy on your roof? And he told him who I was. He said, my son would never do anything like that for me. I talked with my mom and dad about these things later on, and they said they, they told us I don't know how many times that, that most of our friends' children want nothing to do with them. Why are y'all doing all of this stuff for us? Of course, we we did it, and my my was not always great. <laughs> people today, a lot of people are suffering from abandonment issues and sometimes that's older people, but just remember this, that even though people may abandon us, the Lord never will. He never will, even though we tend to be stinkers at times even though we tend to be rebellious children at times even sometimes our life meaning doesn't look very christianized at all I mean the secular statistics about family relationships is terrible One of the studies I read, one in four Americans is completely estranged from their entire family. They have no contact, no connection with family at all anymore. One out of four. Seven percent of adults have broken ties with their mother. They have no connection, no contact, no anything with their mother at all anymore. Seven percent. what about fathers you think it's higher or lower significantly higher 27 percent people are designed to be relational why because God is relational and we are made in his image The fact that he is one God who is three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is a very basic, fundamental foundation upon what all relationship is built. We're relational because the God who made us is relational. Verse 6, the author encourages his audience. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The inferred conclusion is not really anything. But notice here that helpers help, right? You know if you're not helping you're not a helper helpers help which means they assist other people we have a helper his name is the Holy Spirit and the Father has sent forth and Jesus says he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you we have a helper he helps some traditions really emphasize the Holy Spirit and the role of the ho- Holy Spirit and most of those we would call charismatic forms of Christianity they have a very great emphasis on the Holy Spirit, and sometimes I think the emphasis on the Holy Spirit it goes way beyond, and basically is greater than, it, than it is in maybe some other areas. It shouldn't be true. But we, uh, in our tradition, we don't talk about, we don't consider the Holy Spirit much at all. But what I would tell you is this, is even though I disagree with a lot of stuff that goes on in the name of charismatic Christianity, I would tell you they've done at least this. They have brought the attention of a lot of the rest of the church upon the Holy Spirit in a way that it never had before. We have a helper. He indwells us he moves us he strengthens us he speaks to our minds and to our hearts he helps but he doesn't do entirely How many times do you think you've been prodded by the Holy Spirit to do something and you just flat said, I'm just not going to do it? And you were able to rationalize why. Paul writes these in regard to the Spirit. He says, for, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. The he here, he's actually talking about Christ, not specifically the Holy Spirit. So we ask the question, how is it that Christ is at work in us? He's in work within us through the Holy Spirit who indwells us. There's a sense in, everything, in which everything that we do as Christians is, is, is that we do it in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Working together for a common purpose, for a common good. Perhaps we actually do the doing, but He moves us very often to do it. and supports us in our endeavor. It's this sense in which the Lord is my helper. We have a helper. God doesn't expect us to do anything entirely on our own, He is with us. How often do we let fear overcome? things that are going on inside of us. In other words, we we sometimes we have a sense that we're being moved to do this that or the other. And we resist it. Because we're afraid. For whatever reason. How many times has fear paralyzed you? and prevented you from doing something you knew the Lord would have you do. And I think the principal fear is this is we're afraid how people are going to react to what we do or what we have to say. Sometimes I think we're afraid to say things because we're afraid we're going to lose a particular relationship to alienation or something we don't know how the person's going to respond is what i'm saying here and sometimes we allow that to paralyze us and so knowing that we should say something or do something we don't do it what about this statistics even though we are all called to do it every christian is called to do it 80 percent of christians do not consistently evangelize I think by anybody's measure that's a very high number and maybe it's not that high but I I would say to you that there's there's real evidence for to conclude at least that's true for the majority of Christians there are people who go to church maybe every Sunday for a whole lifetime that never one time in their life will ever share the gospel with another person that's hard to imagine Some people think that's the pastor's job. How do I evangelize? Well, I tell the pastor to go see somebody. Evangelism is a responsibility of every Christian. But I want us to understand something, that when we evangelize, we're participating in a partnership. We're not alone. When you go to that person, even if there's not another physical being there with you, the Holy Spirit is there. And the Holy Spirit's presence is the only thing that will make any difference as far as the outcome of that conversation goes. What we're talking about here is evangelism as a joint effort between us and the Holy Spirit. And the result of it is entirely up to the Holy Spirit, not us. why because we can't cause a person to be born again by the spirit only he can John chapter 3 verse 5 the words of Jesus unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of God we can't convert anybody That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. We partner with the Holy Spirit in doing evangelism, but the outcome of evangelism is entirely up to the Holy Spirit. Only He can cause someone dead in their trespasses to be born again. We can't. So how good are you at resting? Seriously. I know most of us in this room are very industrious people. <laughs> we do this and we do that and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I have a hard time. You know, I can sit around the house for a few hours, but before long I'm going to go out. I'm going to just tell Lori I'm going to go out to my shop and piddle, <laughs> you know, and... So I did something yesterday that most of you probably never done in your whole lifetime. You know, the property that we have, i cut so I cut down a, a cedar tree that was about that big around a few weeks ago, because I wanted to get some cedar wood to maybe make some a table or a chair or something out of, uh, and that sort of thing. But I was out in my shop debarking a cedar log yesterday with a hand tool. You ever done that? See, I love doing that kind of stuff. People think I'm crazy. Why would you get out there and do something like that? God has given us a very great tool. The Holy Spirit. have the promise of Jesus. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. New Year's is coming up. You giving any thought to those resolutions you're going to make? Were you faithful to the ones you made for this year? Maybe for you and me, a very good New Year's resolution might go something like this. That we would resolve to deepen our understanding of and relationship to the one who lives inside of us. The Holy Spirit. Lord is on our side because that is true we have not to fear not one single thing he is our great defender he is a guide it's like he's taking us by the hand and he's guiding us through life preventing us from messing it up too terribly bad It's through him. I mean, what are we doing right now at Christmas time? We're remembering who? We're remembering Jesus. Right? Our Savior who came into the world that we would have salvation through him. Born in Bethlehem as a baby. Obviously key to our relationship with the God who made us. There is no relationship apart from Jesus. Period. But just remember this. That there was someone else present there. Even in that manger scene. Not in human form. God the Holy Spirit they're superintending everything